You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. We have four different uh, tiers of um, membership on Patreon. At $1 per month, you get exclusive B-roll episodes recorded specifically for Patreon. So in the B-roll episode that's accompanying, accompanying this episode of Anthology... I kind of talk a lot about my first impressions and excitement over the Mass Effect Legendary Edition uh, remaster. Uh, In the coming weeks, I am hoping to just keep doing that. (laughs) Like each B-roll episode I record for an episode of Anthology will be just me updating my progress on the Mass Effect Legendary Edition um, because I love that franchise so, so much. Um, At the $2 per month level, you get TV reaction and review episodes. Um, I am soon going to do an episode reviewing um, Sasquatch on Hulu. I meant to do that last week but I lost track and I didn't get around to it. So uh, sorry in particular to Robert in Utah (laughs) Um, uh, because I know he's excited about that. So uh, that's at $2 per month. I'm also doing, I'm going to be doing weekly reviews of Loki and Lisey's story over there. So check that out. And then at $5 per month, you get movie commentary tracks, which I will be doing a commentary track for hopefully A Quiet Place and then... um, here next weekend i'm gonna do hopefully three next weekend for memorial day weekend so um check that out five dollars per month and finally at ten dollars per month you get early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content so right now as i'm sure you guys know if you subscribe to the podcast obviously i'm doing a bonus episode review series of the amazon prime david weil um sci-fi anthology series solos um i have recorded all seven of those episodes um as of this recording i've only only released one of them but if you subscribe to patreon at ten dollars per month you'll get instant access to all seven of those episodes um and i'm hoping to do the same thing with philip k dick's electric dreams in august so um in addition to that you get early access to episodes not this one because i'm recording this late but usually i try to record anthology a week or two in advance and the commentary or I'm sorry the patrons at the $10 per month level get access to those as soon as I upload them or as soon as I edit them and get them done so usually a week or maybe two weeks in advance so again all of that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer I have a lot of fun posting content on patreon I try to do as much as I can per month and it's really rewarding if you guys want to support me with money and get extra content Uh, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer so today on the show I'm going to be discussing Death's Head Revisited. It's the ninth episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it had originally aired on November 10th, 1961, and I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 17, titled The Lost Heartbeat. And once again, check out my uh, bonus episodes of... um, Oh, God, uh, Solos, um, because I'm really excited about that show. It was... 
overall spoilers for the bonus episode series i thought it was pretty solid um i listened to that first episode again and i hope that you guys didn't mind me going on so many tangents um i will say that in that episode i did reference the um i referenced anne hathaway and jesse eisenberg's first screen roles in that family drama on fox that lasted one season called get real i am delighted to announce you guys that the majority of episodes of Get Real are available on YouTube right now. And uh, so if you want to check out the a show that stole 13-year-old Matt's heart, um, check that out. It's You can find it. Just type in Get Real TV Show into YouTube. Um, I haven't gone back and watched them, but I have a feeling that they probably won't hold up. So... Anyway, um, I'm really enjoying the, the, I'm really enjoying solos and hope you guys enjoy my coverage of that as well. So, and also thank you to, uh, to, to, um, uh, oh, to Victor Gamboa. <laughs> Uh, host of the Outer Limits podcast and Patreon supporter as well. Um, He gave me a very nice compliment on my coverage of solos, and I really, really appreciate that. So, And check out his show. He just released his latest episode uh, yesterday. Um, So yeah, check that out. And okay, so let's get into this episode of Anthology. So I'm going to be, of course, reading a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. This plot summary is going to be, obviously, for Death's Head Revisited. And from here on out, I'm spoiling the entire episode. So if this is your first time listening and you just want a brief rundown of the episode, or if you just want a non-spoiler thing... um, that's not in the cards for you. <laughs> so go uh, watch the episode and then uh, and then come back and listen to my review, which, by the way, apparently June 30th um, is the last day that uh, the Twilight Zone is going going to be on uh, Netflix, weirdly enough. So um, there's some conjecture around the inner internets um, and something that I kind of think might be the case um, is that I, I kind of get, I'm, I'm suspicious that maybe uh, Paramount and CBS and Viacom or whomever owns the rights and everything. um, I feel like they are maybe letting the streaming rights of the Twilight Zone I think it's possible, at least, that they're letting the streaming rights of the Twilight Zone lapse across all platforms so that it can be exclusive to Paramount+. Plus. Which, I mean, hey, uh, you know, it's funny. I own the Twilight Zone on DVD, and I would probably, if worst, came, worst case scenario, I would probably get Paramount Plus again just to have easy access to it. So I don't know. Um, anyway, that's in the future. So here's a plot summary courtesy of The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Spoilers on for Death's Head Revisited. The small town of Dachau still holds the remains of what was once a concentration camp left over from the war. While most of the town's citizens prefer to burn it to the ground, Captain Gunther Lutze, under the name of Mr. Schmidt, returns to reminisce the days of unforgotten pleasure. While wandering the empty buildings, he meets up with Becker, one of his former victims, who tells Captain Lutze that they are beyond the point of forgiveness. Lutze is to be tried for crimes against humanity by a jury of ghosts who linger within the camp. The indictments are brought to light against Lutza, and the wailing of the dead and the crimes charged against him are too much for his ears. The ghosts of his past walk the building because their vengeance has not was not buried deep enough. Within a matter of minutes, Lutza experiences the same tortures he ordered against the anguished, 
including machine gun bullets, a hangman's noose, and inhuman surgery. Sometime later, uh, the local doctor commits Lutza to a hospital because the former captain's mind has snapped. Shaking his head, the doctor questions why the camp still stands. Death's Head Revisited stars Oscar Bereji. Uh, Jr. as Captain Lutza, a.k.a. Mr. Schmidt. Uh, this is his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. He previously appeared in the Re- Rip Van Winkle caper, and next he will appear in Season 4's episode Mute, and he also appeared in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959, although that role was actually uncredited. And co-starring as Alfred Becker is Joseph Schl- uh, Schildkraut, uh, this is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see of him is, I think it's later this season, in The Trade-Ins. And interestingly, some mildly interesting, um, this was his only science fiction credit in his entire career. So I kind of thought that was vaguely interesting. And rounding out the cast as the Doctor is Ben Wright. This is his second of three Twilight Zones. He previously appeared in Judgment Night. And next he will appear in Dead Man's Shoes. And he has uh, quite a bit of uh, science fiction credits. To kind of run down a few of them, he was in 1958's unaired pilot for Now is Tomorrow, which was actually my bonus review in episode nine of the podcast like a decade ago. And I kind of looked that up because I had like I'd found that episode. I was really excited about um, finding that unaired pilot on YouTube. And I looked up the show notes for that episode and clicked the links in that that the YouTube link is dead now because the uh, user, uh, the user, um, uh, the username has been terminated or whatever. So I don't know. So unfortunately, uh, maybe it's available somewhere else. But anyway, he also appeared in two episodes of One Step Beyond and four episodes of The Outer Limits. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling. He was inspired to write this episode after the highly publicized trial of Otto uh, Otto Adolf Eichmann. Uh, considered to be the architect of the Holocaust, uh, that uh, uh, Eichmann was portrayed by Stanley Tucci in the um, excellent and and powerful uh, uh, film on HBO called Conspiracy from 2001. So uh, check that out if this subject uh, morbidly interests you. Director for this episode was Don Medford, who directed five episodes of The Twilight Zone. This is his fourth directorial effort in the zone. Uh, previous we saw from him was a few or a couple of weeks ago in The Mirror. And next and last we'll see of him is in season four's Death Ship. So, um, talent rundown out of the way. Let me go into my feelings as a first-time viewer of Death's Head Revisited. And before I do that, I'm actually going to talk about what I knew before going into this episode. So... I knew that it had something to do with a former Nazi officer reckoning with his actions in World War II, um, and I kind of likened it to Season 1's Judgment Night. My entire, my my kind of viewpoint of it was that it might be similar to Judgment Night. Um, and then I also, weirdly enough, I thought that it starred George C. Scott. Um, <laughs> like, I, I have in my notes, does it star George C. Scott, or am I confusing him with someone else based on the still image? And yes, I was confusing him with someone else. Um, obviously, the still image had a picture of Oscar Bereji Jr. Um, and I don't know, just like the brief glances I caught of it, I thought that it was George C. Scott. But George C. Scott is not in this episode. And I also knew that this episode was adapted into a graphic novel which I didn't have a chance to read before this review, so unfortunately I won't have my thoughts on that, but um, it is it was adapted into a graphic novel. 
So, um, all right. That is my feelings as a first-time viewer, or my overall feelings, or my what I knew before. That's what I was talking about. Okay, what I knew before going in, out of the way. Now let's get into my review of Death's Head Revisited proper. So it opens with a shot of the interior of a hotel, and uh, that's when Lutza walks in. Um, obviously, the actors all have German accents in this. And uh, the woman that's clerking the um, the counter uh, starts to recognize him because he asks if, if he can have any, if he can have a room. She's like, oh, yeah, you can have a room with a balcony view of, of whatever. Um, and then she recognizes him. And the music kind of does this, does that like Twilight Zone, like, like ominous uh, score thing so much so that I, I kind of expected it to immediately like lead into Serling's uh, narration <laughs> at this point because I was like I was just kind of like not caught off guard but I was like surprised like oh we're getting right into this um, and it just signals to us that it is this kind of like there is underlying tension here um, so she says that he reminds her of someone from the war um, since there were SS officers stationed there, uh, <clears throat> stationed there who would go into the inn all the time. And he says that he spent the war on the Russian front in the Panzer Division. And that I found interesting on repeat viewings because to me, it kind of implies that deep down he, he knows his culpability in it. Obviously, like the kind of standard Nazi defense or uh, deflection in terms of their war crimes was I was following orders. I was doing my job. I was following orders. Um, and this, I just like the subtlety of this, that he just immediately like lies and says, well, he spent the war on the Russian front. So it's not so to distance himself from the complete atrocity of the Holocaust. And it just kind of, I don't know, deep down, like I said, deep down, he knows that he's culpable, um, and that he enjoyed the, you know, the the monster that he was and while he's not like so i I don't say that in terms of saying that he's a sympathetic character he is by no stretch in any capacity any any semblance of a sympathetic character um and it's not a redemptive story at all but i just think that this is an interesting hint of his awareness of his sociopathy um sociopath sociopathy i don't know um his sociopathic tendencies and everything so it's just an interesting like window into this character so she tells him that there was a concentration camp there and he he the oscar Baragi jr he does a phenomenal job in this episode because he laughs and he says that he can't remember the name of the town and he gets this like very gleeful like way about him where he is basically forcing her to say the name of of the of the town which i keep i keep mispronouncing in my head when i say it out loud but it's a dachau and when 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 you know she said the name of it i was like oh jesus christ because obviously that's you know that was i believe the first concentration camp um and it's i mean the holocaust that I'll talk about it here in a bit, but I mean, uh, I would like to go on record and say truly horrific. Um, and just like knowing that this episode was going to deal with that and, and deal with it so directly was, was really interesting to me in terms of making me kind of a little, I wouldn't say apprehensive, but made me a little bit nervous about, about the episode, uh, because it is such a, I mean, it, it, the, the subject matter is so heinous and horrific and to the point where it's almost incomprehensible, um, in, in my brain at least. So I was very cautiously curious to see how, 
um, the Twilight Zone was going to tackle this this um, atrocity in 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 fiction in in its fictional depiction of of it and everything. So, um, anyway, so so he is Luta is joyful and it's and and like the way that Bragi Bragi I don't know if I'm pronouncing that uh, that name correctly, but the way that he plays Lutza as this happy man almost on a vacation is just so utterly disturbing to me all out of the gate. And the mere fact that he is even visiting it in 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 general is just really, really disturbing and, and really messed up. Um and so it just primes this episode for like, okay, this is gonna be a, a very rich um a rich a rich story in terms of hopefully consequence. And it turned out to be that so uh the innkeeper says that most most of them would like the camp to be burned to the ground talking about the camp um on the hill and because he because he mentions like oh there was a camp up there wasn't there and he's like giddy about it um and she says that most of them would want would like the camp to be burned to the ground and i felt like that was an interesting kind of mirror to the end it's it's called back to at the end of the episode which i'll talk about but um given the subject matter of this episode of the twilight zone i have this very snarky and probably aggressive thing <laughs> uh based on like this intro that i had written out and everything um that i'm going to be saying here in a bit but just to prime just to just for context it's because of the people who were very um aggressively critical of the Simon Kinberg and Jordan Peele reboot, um, and everything. So, um, okay. So I'm, I'm going to play, here's just the intro that I wrote. It's stupid. Anyway, here's Rod Serling's opening narration for this episode of the Twilight Zone, a show famously apolitical that never had any kind of social commentary or any storylines pulled from or inspired by current events until the quote unquote woke mob of Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg, Kinberg rebooted it. So here's Rod Serling's opening narration. Mr. Schmidt recently arrived in a small Bavarian village which lies eight miles northwest of Munich. A picturesque, delightful little spot one time known for its scenery, but more recently related to other events having to do with some of the less positive pursuits of man. Human slaughter, torture, misery, and anguish. Mr. Schmidt, as we will soon perceive, has a vested interest in the ruins of a concentration camp. For once, some 17 years ago, his name was Gunter Lutze. He held the rank of a captain in the SS. He was a black uniformed strutting animal whose function in life was to give pain. And like his colleagues of the time, he shared the one affliction most common amongst that breed known as Nazis. He walked the earth without a heart. And now former SS Captain Lutzer will revisit his old haunts, satisfied perhaps that all that is awaiting him in the ruins on the hill is an element of nostalgia. What he does not know, of course, is that a place like Dachau cannot exist only in Bavaria. By its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone. And so that... That phrasing at the end of that, by its nature, by its very nature, it must be one of the populated areas of the Twilight Zone, is just beautifully haunting, and and it's it's just brings us into this episode in such a such a beautifully written prose um, as Serling is wont to do, obviously, um, and it's just very haunting. And also, brief tangent, given the the um, um, introduction to this clip and everything, just I just want to say. Uh, 
Hardy just screw you to anyone who says politics and social commentary don't belong in the Twilight Zone. Like, seriously. Like, the reason that I did that snarky intro is because I'm almost halfway through the series. And if I have to, like, I'm so frustrated by that idea that people say that, oh, social commentary and politics and, and anything like that do, do not belong in the Twilight Zone because that is patently false. Like, that is demonstrably wrong. And it's an utterly stupid criticism. So... I'm almost halfway through the series, and if I have to point out how utterly stupid that criticism of the reboot was for the entirety of the second half of the show, I will gladly do that because, again, it is so profoundly ignorant, and in light of the stuff that has happened with the election and with the insurrection in January um, here in the U.S., I kind of get the sense, and this may be overstepping my bounds, this may be a little bit... um, too uh vitriolic but deep down i kind of suspect that the the people who i i suspect that that criticism of the new series was deflection because i have this theory in my head that if people who love the original series but are offended just by the mere presence of commentary or or like um uh social commentary or politics in the new series I am only left to assume it's because they are in opposition of the positions presented in it, and they don't like being called out for how much of an asshole they are, <laughs> objectively speaking. Um, it's just, it's, and they don't want to be confronted with, with like the actual issues of the day, instead living in their bubble and everything. And I don't know, it's just, it, I gained such a short fuse for that type of criticism. And like, granted, it's not, it's, that's different from, saying like, oh, I didn't like how they implemented the social commentary. I didn't like how much social commentary or how surface level it was. Those are valid criticisms that even I raised myself in several episodes and everything. But the idea that the Twilight Zone or science fiction in general does not need or has no use for or does not uh, need to incorporate any kind of social commentary is completely asinine because that is literally what science fiction's function is. Like that is the creation of science fiction is a reflection of like our society and uh, like human like human beings' lives <laughs> under the kind of um just just uh, uh, under the the kind of banner of futurism and. And what we are capable of. It's a reflection of our future selves uh, with a backdrop of science fiction and everything. And it's something that is just so intertwined that just when I hear people say like, oh, there's too many politics in this. It's like, it's fucking science fiction, guys. Like, it's science fiction. That's what it is meant to be. So, I don't know. So, anyway, um, that's a slight tangent. And uh, I hope you guys didn't mind. But, anyway, the set design for this episode is chilling. Um, they, uh, according to the trivia that I read, um, it's it's uh, part of a back lot that had, like, a... Uh, that was used for westerns, I think. But they dress it up for the... Um, uh, for the, for the uh, Doc House set. And, again, like, the character of Lutza... He is walking along, walking through the camp very gleefully and uh, very happily. And, and like, it's like in the opening narration when Serling talks about how Lutza is there and he is only there really for, like, his, his best, um, his best hope is that he's there for nostalgia. And, like, just the idea of this, this monster who, led these atrocities and led these 
heinous acts with glee returning to the scene of where he was 17 years later with this wistful nostalgia is absolutely horrifying and just the mental disconnect that he has toward where he is and what happened there it says so much about how absolutely evil he is and how evil by extension the nazi regime was and how the nazism was completely unequivocally evil and i think that that's demonstrated very well in this episode um so lutza is walking to the building and then he turns back and he sees the hanged people on the gallows and that's a very scary effect um very scary and and creepy and unsettling and i wasn't really expecting that level of just creepiness and, and directness of it and I've got to say, I really, really like the effect of them appearing and disappearing because it's it gives the impression of being more a memory than as as opposed to being actual visions of of them there. So the idea that he's fondly fondly remembering murdering people en masse is kind of difficult to watch, and it's also slightly different from his interactions with Becker, which I'll get to. So. I just really like the interesting use of uh, flashback and visuals to show Dachau during the war, um, because his it, like when he goes into the building and he is looking at the the bedding and everything, his memory of him in uniform, his memory his memory of himself appears to us on screen next to him with him in uniform ordering the prisoners awake and into the yard for exercises. Like that is just made so much more disturbing by the happiness on his face. So we have this vision of him, this memory of him speaking to these human beings as if they are not human beings. And we see present day Lutza just smiling with like glee and happiness. And it's, it's a, it's just, it's hard to watch. Like he loved the power and he loved the control over others. And that it just makes that look of glee and nostalgia on Lutza's face uh, completely horrific. So I want to break here for a second and just say that um, back uh, probably a few years ago, I think, I read or I listened on Audible to The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which really, really affected me. This was a book that was written in, I think, like 67, and um, it is it is a comprehensive like look at uh, the Third Reich and at like... Oh, it was it was a tough read and everything. And and again, really brief here. I just want to say that anyone who's actually deluded enough to compare having to wear a piece of fabric over their mouths to the Holocaust is honestly making it clear that their opinion on literally anything should and does not matter because they're morons. Completely. So I wrote that note that I just recited there. <laughs> I wrote that note weeks ago when I was doing prep for this episode. And just the other day, Marjorie Taylor Greene, fucking monster that she is, said that being asked to get vaccinated or wear masks in Congress is the same as the Holocaust. Like, I actually pulled a clip to play because it is so unbelievable to me. So here's a clip of this trash person saying something heinous. You know, we can look back in a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. 
This is exactly the type of abuse. Like the, f- I it, that is that is horrific. I I just I don't have words for that. And then she doubled down on that with a with an interview with a with a with a reporter, which I will play that short clip here. We shouldn't be having this kind of treatment. No one should be treated like a second class citizen for saying I don't need to wear a mask or saying that my medical records or my privacy based on my HIPAA rights. And so I stand by all of my statements. I said nothing wrong. And I think any any rational Jewish person didn't like what happened in, in Nazi Germany. And any rational Jewish person doesn't like what's happening with overbearing mask mandates and overbearing vaccine policies. Do you understand, though, why some would be upset and offended by the comment? Well, do you understand how people feel about being forced to wear masks or being forced to have to take a vaccine or even have to say that whether they've taken it or not? These are just things that shouldn't be happening in America. This is a free country. So I shared those clips uh, for a couple of reasons, which I'll talk more about at the end of this episode, at the end of this review. But I just wanted to say for posterity, what a fucking asinine thing to draw a comparison to. Um, the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a an atro- like a, an atrocity that I said is almost unfathomable. And to bring that up as a comparison to being required to wear masks to prevent the spread of a virus in Congress is just is is absolutely abhorrent. And yeah, I'll talk more about that. But anyway, so to get back, I swear that's probably going to be my last tangent. So uh, to get back to the actual review, uh, Lutza walks outside and he sees a, um, a sign for the detention center. And he says that it was such good times. And he goes into the detention center and like he uh, sees the photo of Hitler or he doesn't see it. It's just in the, in the background, but there's a photo of Hitler on the wall and he has more vision of his memory um we we are given more visions of his memory where he's where it has this almost ghostly quality to it now it's like building upon the previous one because we have a vision of him tormenting a prisoner by denying him food for five days and just like mocking him and just treating him like not a human being and it's just it's it's really unsettling and really unnerving and i really really respect and appreciate this episode for really going for that like going for the depiction of the monstrosity of the holocaust because i mean that is something that should as serling says in the closing narration should always be remembered and should always be prevented in the future like that type of horrific um thing should just be should never be forgotten because it is so so horrifying um so lutza sees a prisoner who isn't a memory it is becker and as he sees him the gate closes and locks um by magic and there's such a distinct visual difference between the memory and the visions and reality when becker appears and i just feel like that's just really good filmmaking and so becker says we've been waiting for you and then he says we've been waiting waiting for a long time and that makes for a very intense act break because becker knows who lutza is and this is like because he refers to him as lutza and the character of lutza is is uh, kind of caught off guard and and it's something that for it to be the act break it is an interesting kind of 
switch or tilt in the in the narrative because up until now Lutza has just been walking through the through the memories of his um of his his monstrosities and now in 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 the end establishing that he kind of makes a comment or or he doesn't um what's the word I'm looking for he de- he doesn't acknowledge it because he lied and said like he lies about his name and lies about where he was during the war and so now he is kind of, in a sense, found out, and this kind of ups it into into an interesting level for the episode. So Lutza says that uh, Becker hasn't changed in in the fourteen or fifteen years since he's seen him, and Becker corrects him and says it's been seventeen years. And Lutza asks if Becker is the caretaker, and uh, Becker says, in a manner of speaking. And this lack of self-awareness and lack of accountability on Lutz's part leads him to try to be just pleasant toward Becker. It is such a, it is such a surreal uh, situation or a surreal encounter because you have this person who was a prisoner in a concentration camp meeting with the captain of the SS at that camp who did all of these horrif- horrific things. 17 years after the war and the the captain is jovial he is speaking to him like he just oh yeah you know we were we worked together about almost 20 years ago so let me let me see how you been and everything it's just that that disconnect that uh, aware lack of self-awareness or lack of awareness and lack of accountability um is just so kind of haunting in its own unique way and then we get the sound effect of the howling wind or howling moans of the prisoners. And this kind of demonstrates Lutz's first kind of instance of becoming at the very least slightly conscious of his actions because he kind of reacts to it. And I, I feel like that's meant to impart in us that in the war, in the moment, he could say that it was the wind. He thinks that he thought that it was the wind. And here but but here he has to confront the truth that it 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 was the moans and screams of of prisoners and everything. So there's that kind of uh, accountability coming forward just a little bit um, because he can't deny it. Like with everything else going on during the war and and in the camp and everything, he can shield himself from you know accountability because oh he was just following orders and oh that's just the wind or whatever. But now that he's there alone after the fact, it's kind of becoming more and more clear, at least little by little, I should say, um, that you know these things aren't uh, these atrocities are atrocities, and and it's something that he can't just sk- skirt past. So, um, he says that he was a soldier, and Becker says this incredible line where he says. You were never a soldier. The uniform you wore could not be shut off. It was part of you, part of your body. It was a piece of your mind. And just, I thought that was incredible, incredible. And he goes on to say that you were a sadist, uh, deriving pleasure from pain. And he's just describing the kind of sadism of Nazism and everything. And it's just, again, so much respect for me that they went all in on just the, just, uh, going all in on the the idea of presenting the true nature of the holocaust in this episode is just is it's remarkable filmmaking in my opinion and writing so lutza again is disturbed by the noises from the from the building and uh becker calls him out on that there's so much of a of a good back and forth between becker and and lutza because becker does not give him any leeway at all nor should he but he says 
Uh, when your victim screamed, you weren't sensitive. Why are you sensitive now? And he doesn't do this in this gleeful thing. It's not like this, it's not like this punishment thing for him. It is just, he delivers all of these lines. Um, uh, Schildkraut delivers all of these lines with such a steadiness and just a, a um, just a, this calmness with this underlying severity that is just absolutely incredible. And I wish I would have written out the rest of his words here, but he talks about how the denial and saying that they were just following orders and everything was the Nazi theme music at Nuremberg. And I just, I again, I just think that this is an amazing piece of art from from the Twilight Zone because again, that steadiness in Schildkraut's performance as he's carefully letting out a just a barrage of statements, reciting that that at times is reciting the Nazis' defenses and denials of their actions, and also just like noting them and saying that it's the he says it's the plaintiff um, the plaintiff litany of the master race as it lay dying and. Just, I just found it incredibly powerful. And then he follows that up again, this, this episode not relenting on the, on the descriptions of, of the authenticity or the, or the actual like idea or I don't know how to phrase it, the, the reality of the Holocaust. He follows it up with vivid descriptions of like specific atrocities that, that Lutze, um, committed. And at this point, Lutza realizes like, oh, okay, um, I got to get out of here. I'll see you later. And he runs in fear, but he can't escape. And Becker taunts him. And this is such a, a, a brilliant part because he says that Lutza was safe. Like he says, um, you know, you were safe in South America. You had a, you had an assumed identity. Why come back? Why would you come back here? And Lutza says that he'd, and this is, God, this is just so infuriating and horrific. But he says, Lutz, uh, he says he'd hoped people would have forgotten the little mistakes that time had passed. And he thinks people would, he hoped people would have forgotten the little mistakes. And again, that's infuriating. And then Becker calls him out on it. And he's like, little mistakes, little mistakes. And then he just tells him that, um, that it's just, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. Um, like his lack of, uh, his, his, um, disconnect with, with the truth of what he did is, is absolutely horrific. So Becker says that they have something to accomplish there. They have to do, they have to give Lutza his trial. And I put in my notes, oh, fuck yes. Um, this is going to be, this is going to be good, um, you know, Nazi comeuppance, I guess. So that's when Lutza gets indignant and asks if it's a joke and says that Becker is insane, just as insane as he was when he, and then he trails off because Becker then picks it up and finishes his thought with just vivid descriptions of the horror that he did specifically to Becker, stringing him up, um, burning him with cigarettes and, and beating him and everything. And this is, again, Lutza trying to escape after that. He runs into the camera. And this is such a very, very cool filmmaking moment that I, I was I was very enamored with. So he runs into the camera and it reverses to him running toward a door and he's trapped in the building. It's this very cool disorienting sequence where he's outside, he runs at the camera as his body kind of overtakes the frame and turns to darkness, it switches seamlessly to him running away from the camera in the building toward the doorway and the doors locked and everything. So 
This, again, it's very cool, very disorienting, and it's reminiscent of that mirror scene from the very first episode of the series, um, Where Is Everybody?, with Earl Holloman running down the stairs of the of the theater and into the mirror, shattering it. Um, that disorienting perspective thing is just so, so cool. And here, like, while this is different from that, it's only reminiscent of that. So I appreciate how it is a different style and a different technique, but using something that is reminiscent of something that's established in the Twilight Zone. So... I don't know. I just really, really wanted to point that out because I uh, really love the filmmaking of that. So then immediately after that, he falls to the ground. And another kind of really cool um, filmmaking technique is the camera turns to show the prisoner standing over him um, as uh, all staring at him. And from his angle, it's from his point of view. So the camera is upside down. So everything is inverted. And then it slowly tilts until it's uh, until it's. Um, converted, <laughs> outverted, uh, until it's right side up. So uh, this is when <sighs> the character of Lutza is a despicable character, and he is infuriating in his lack of awareness and lack of accountability, lack of wanting to, um, lack of taking responsibility. And Maybe the most um, infuriating and most uh, anger-inducing line is when he says, please let me out of here. This is this is inhuman. And I just feel like that is such an amazing breakdown of the cowardice and the disconnect of the character in Nazis. Um, the, the disconnect of Nazi, like sadism. Is just it's it's incredibly well drawn in this episode, and it's because he lacks the capacity to understand the horror of his actions, and he only considers his own experience as like as anything that has any bearance on you know worthy of of life. Um, because later he, I mean, right here he is saying that um, this is inhuman because it is affecting him and not affecting others. It's just it's a really incredible characterization of the sadism inherent within Nazism. And the uh, then I believe it's Becker starts reading the charges to him and he's they're laying thousands of deaths at his feet. And as the counts are being as the charges are being read and the indictments are being read and everything, Lutus starts to scream and he screams and screams and screams specifically to drown it out. And this was really interesting to me because this is his conscience, like it's slowly been eking toward at least like realizing that he did something wrong or he did something horrific that he is not admitting to. But here it's where his conscience is starting to kind of break open a little bit more and it's kind of coming to him a little bit. It's not necessarily the regret of it, but it's the insanity beginning to form within him. And as he as he kind of can't take it anymore, he starts to pass out. And the crowd of prisoners start moaning toward him and like groaning um, in this very haunting, haunting um, like chorus. And it was reminiscent to me of the horrifying chance at the end of The Obsolete Man, which if you heard my review of The Obsolete Man, I absolutely adored that episode. So it was really cool to see that horrifying kind of technique, um, uh, that horrifying chance uh, thing recur in this episode of The Twilight Zone. So he passes out and he wakes up to the, the building again. With uh, the prisoners are gone. It's modern day. And Becker is standing over him. And this is, again, another interesting depiction of 
Lutza as a character just deflecting and not taking responsibility because he says that he had a weird dream, he that it was a dream, and Becker tells him there was no dream. And again, I, I kind of think that it's him running away or deflecting again. He doesn't want to face his reality or face the truth of what he did. And it's not out of a... It's not out of sense it's not out of a sense of regret or anything because I do believe that this character is meant to be depicted as a monster who has no redeeming qualities. There is no redemption arc in this because frankly there shouldn't be a f- there shouldn't be a redemption arc for Nazism because they it is it is the again unfathomable evil and um it's just him deflecting again. Anyway, so um, Becker says that he didn't bury them deep enough, and that's that's why you know he keeps coming back, or why why it's coming back to haunt him and everything. And so he says, um, "I just gotta, I've just gotta highlight uh, Schildkraut's performance because he says uh, because because Lutza says Becker, who are you? And then again, like that steady intensity and that very." Um, very steady, calming, but with an undercurrent of anger and hatred and, and, um, um, not discipline, but threat where he says, did you forget the caretaker? And it's just this haunting thing. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, uh, some of the stuff that the ghosts say in the shining, um, in 1980, um, because it's just this very like matter of fact thing. Like, did you forget I'm the caretaker and, you know, I'm caring for all of these people that you murdered. And so I don't know. I just think Shieldcroft's performance is, is incredible in this, as is um, Bebereji Jr. Um, I didn't have his name right in front of me. So, um, yeah. And then, uh, so Becker tells him that the trial is over and Lutza, spoiler alert, has been found guilty. And they will now pr- pronounce him or pronounce the sentencing. And Lutza starts laughing maniacally. And this was, this was an interesting break for him because that seems like, it seems like he's, he's deflecting again. He is trying to rationalize the unrationalizable. Um, and he's laughing because of the, because he doesn't know how to respond to, uh, not criticism, but, but comeuppance for him and, and consequence for his actions. So, he breaks the glass in the window and he starts yelling into the camp, calling out for, uh, kind of, kind of saying the absurdity of it all and calling out for the, for the pigs, kind of recurring what, what he said earlier in the flashback, uh, when he, when he was in the uniform and, um, and calling for, for the prisoners to, to get up and go out for exercise. So he calls out for the pigs to come out of their graves to watch the, watch the sentencing and the execution. And then he has the actual audacity to ask where the judge, jury, and executioner is. And this is such a, another infuriating kind of thing. This lack of self-awareness of his actions. This, this knowing just complete disregard, uh, uh, disregard of what he did and lack of accountability is just so infuriating. And it's, it's written beautifully in the script because again, just the audacity of him to ask where the judge, jury and executioner is, is just, just incredible characterization, I think. So, 
he starts yelling directly at Becker and he claims that Becker has hatched this all out of his imagination and that this is it's has this undertone of being this unjust kind of unfair um, thing against Lutzo, which is completely asinine because he absolutely deserves every shred of insanity that he gets at the end of this episode. And then he, he asks why he didn't kill Becker when he had the chance. And as he says that, he then remembers that he did kill Becker. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Like, obviously, obviously I knew Becker was a spirit or a ghost of some kind. I didn't realize that it would be a, it would come to a point where, uh, Lutza forgot that he murdered him. And it, that alone just speaks to the scale of the atrocity of the Holocaust and Nazism and everything. Like he can't even remember killing this man who he's been talking to for the duration of this episode. And he can remember him, but he can't remember murdering him. And that's just kind of amazing characterization and amazing writing. And then Becker like further clarifies, he's like, yeah, you killed me the night that the camp was liberated when when uh, Lutzo was killing everyone that he could while he still could. And just that is like the, that is as direct as this episode has been in terms of like, as I said, I respect the hell out of it for doing this, but the way that it is describing the, the actual like atrocities taken um, in the camp and actually going forward and, and describing in detail, like what happened and everything, all of that, is is incredible but the but the idea that this character was killing everyone he could while he still could while the camp was being liberated is such a defining point of that character in the the subtext of what they're saying that nazism breeds this type of sadism and and this type of horror is not contingent on orders it's contingent on personality it's contingent on someone who has been given this this free reign to to murder indiscriminately and torture indiscriminately on no other basis than, than, you know, uh, the, that they're Jewish or not Aryan. It's just, it is insanity, insanity to me. And it is such good characterization for the Lutza character to just bring us home to this. Like, this is the monster. This is absolutely the monster of the episode. And this is, that is one of his defining moments is us learning that just how far reaching of a monster he was. So at that point, um, on brand for Lutza, he tries to strangle Becker and is instantly transported outside, which is kind of a similar, similar effect, but not as flashy as the shot of him running toward the camera. And then uh, like it's switching to him being inside. That's not a criticism or anything. It's just a, an observation that it's just, it's not as flashy and it doesn't need to be that flashy. So Outside, Becker gives him his sentence, and he says, from today on, you will be rendered insane. And Lutza is, um, he's not happy about it. He starts yelling, uh, what is this nonsense? What is this gibberish? What is this madness? And then that's when Becker kind of brings home, brings home the uh, totality of the punishment toward uh Lutza because he talks about how do you like he says do you feel what you did to all of these people do you feel what happened from the gunfire and we get the sound effects of the gunfire um and then uh, just like the string stringing people up in the gallows and and in killing people burning them uh gassing them everything and we see 
Lutza just just convulsing and 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 feeling the effects of all of this. And this is the this is the the comeuppance. This is the reckoning of Lutza's atrocities come to, come to come to fruition for Lutza. And I just feel like it's such an amazing climax. And as he's convulsing on the ground, Becker goes up to him and he explains to him that this is not hatred. This is not this is this is not hatred. This is retribution. This is not revenge. This is justice. And he says that this is only the beginning. Your final judgment will come from God. And I felt like I felt like that was incredibly incredibly powerful, um, and a, and a good uh, uh, line to kind of end the climax of the episode on. So then, time has passed, and we get a uh, doctor and medics. Uh, uh, taking Lutza away and explaining that he's insane and uh they're positing they're asking what could what could happen in two hours to turn a man into a raving maniac and then uh and then the doctor says uh Dachau why does it still stand why do we keep it standing and then we get the closing narration from Rod Serling which I will play right now why does it still stand why do we keep it standing? There is an answer to the doctor's question. All the Dachaus must remain standing. The Dachaus, the Belsons, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes. All of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge. But worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on and to remember. Not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk, God's earth. So overall thoughts, I thought this was an incredible and powerful episode. And that closing narration is honestly, it's why I included the clips of Marjorie Taylor Greene in this episode, because her words are disgusting and abhorrent. Um, And it's in its own in its own sense, it's disgusting to use the horror of the Holocaust as rhetoric for something as by all accounts as insignificant and as altruistic and as fucking simple as wearing a mask to prevent spreading a virus. Like, it's just, it, it is the politici- politicization of mask wearing and, and it's, 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 exo- it, it broke me. <laughs> it broke me in 2020 and that is carrying over in 2021. So that's the reason why I kept that in here. And that's why I put that clip in this, in this episode, because it is so, it is so unbelievable to me that someone that anyone anyone would equate being being told to wear a mask to being to to the atrocities of the holocaust that is it is literally i can't imagine something more offensive and and horrifically stupid as as that comment so that's why i did it um that's why i included that here and uh yeah so anyway that's the episode. That's my review. Loved the episode. I think I would, I don't know where I would rank it or anything, or if I'm even ranking the episodes, but I do think that this is an incredible episode, especially for a show that is, that is, uh, obviously historically, 
um, apolitical and, uh, and, and would never ever conceive of having any social commentary or any storylines pulled from or inspired by current events or history. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting, <laughs> that outlier of the episode. Um, anyway, so a little bit of trivia for this. I have a lot here, but I'll, I'll kind of pick and choose. So the title of the episode is a play on the Evelyn Waugh novel Brideshead Revisited. Uh, Death's Head being the, I, I think that that's like a, a, a phrasing or word for a Nazi insignia. And uh, let's see. Um, okay, so Alfred Becker, um, uh, which is Lutz's supernatural adversary and judge, was played by distinguished Austrian-born character actor Joseph Schild- Schildkraut. And uh, he actually won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance as Captain Alfred Dreyfus in The Life of Emile Zola in 19- from 1937. And he also... Um, uh, was known for his performance as uh, An- uh, Anne Frank's father, Otto Frank, in both the Broadway stage version of The Diary of Anne Frank and the 1959 film version of it. And uh, let's see. I thought I had something really good here. Oh, this was interesting. V- uh, veteran British-born character actor Ben Wright, who played the Doctor, uh, trained at RADA uh, with Ida Lupino. Um, and worked on stage and screen in the UK before immigrating to the US in 1946. Um, okay, so... Um, the episode, by the way, again, to go back to my comment about it being... Um, about, about about the show being inherently political and, and having social commentary and everything, this episode, uh, as I said... Actually, I just remembered that I said that... <laughs> And the talent rundown, but it was, uh, and Serling was inspired by the trial of, uh, Otto Adolf Eichmann, um, which was televised and, and very highly publicized and everything. In fact, according to, uh, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, um, some of the dialogue in the episode was taken directly from the testimony of Eichmann at the trial. Um, so again, Completely apolitical show, no social commentary or whatever. Anyway, so uh, this is a, this was um, here's I think this is my last piece of trivia. Or no, I have two pieces. So uh, the storyline states that the Nazis killed ten million people during their reign, and uh, the, obviously the kind of uh, the figure that goes around is six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust, and. The figure of 10 million people is actually um, more accurate than that 6 million because it, uh, according to trivia, I'll just read it, a quote, it is estimated that they murdered 6 million Jews, but they also killed many non-Jews, such as political prisoners, Catholic priests, pro- uh, Protestant ministers, homosexuals, gypsies, um, I don't know if that's politically correct, I don't know, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and others who did not meet the Nazi criteria of Aryan supermen. Um, such as the mentally ill and physically and mentally handicapped. And so the end of that trivia line says that the best estimate of total deaths the Nazis were responsible for was approximately 13 million. Again, unfathomable. And to equate that with wearing a fucking mask is, is, uh, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And so final piece of trivia is that 
Due to religiously inspired anti-Semitism that existed in the U.S. at the time, none of the, pres- uh, none of the prisoners depicted in this episode are shown wearing the yellow Star of David, which the Nazis made Jewish prisoners wear at Dachau, um, which uh, was an extermination camp rather than a concentration camp. Jesus Christ. Um, that's horrible. Um, so anyway, that that's why they didn't, uh, that the Star of David didn't appear in it. So, um, okay, well, um, that is my review of Death's Head Revisited. Um, yeah, let me know what you guys thought of this episode. Again, overall thoughts. I thought that this was an incredibly powerful episode and it's, it's directed beautifully. It is performed incredibly well and it has a subject matter that is hard to, hard to, um, to really fathom, like uh, hard to really understand, but it is written with such a deliberate sense of, of what the subject matter is and how horrific the subject matter is that I just have the utmost respect for Serling and for this episode in particular. It's, it's an incredible episode. So as I usually do, I'm going to round out this review with a bonus review of an episode of science fiction theater. So I'm going to play that stinger right, um, here. Nope, that's not it. Jesus. Okay. So now I'm going to play that stinger here. So this week's episode of Science Fiction Theater is The Lost Heartbeat, um, episode 17 from Science Fiction Theater's first and only season, I think, or I think they had two seasons. I don't know. This episode is available in its entirety on YouTube, which I will put a link in the show notes of this episode, and it originally aired on August 13th, 1955. Um, Again, it's called The Lost Heartbeat, and uh, yeah, so the episode synopsis is, um, a young doctor who's been experimenting with heart surgery is visited by his former teacher, elderly Dr. Crane, or uh, (laughs) Jesus, visited by his former former teacher, elderly Dr. Crane's time is short due to his bad ticker. Um, armed with a newly developed miniature battery, he hopes to convince the surgeon to use the power source to run an artificial heart he once implemented in his chest. This episode was directed by Henry S. Kessler and written by Stuart Jerome uh, with the screen bu- screenplay credit. And uh, story credit goes to Anna Hunger and R. DeWitt Miller for their story, The Man Who Refused to Die. This episode stars Zachary Scott, Walter Kingsford, Jan Shepard, uh, Tom McKee and John Mitchum, who I think John Mitchum was in the Twilight Zone, but I didn't put that in my notes, so I'm sorry. Anyway, the pre-show episode, as it is normally in uh, science fiction theater, it's introduced by Truman Bradley, and this uh, just has a pretty straightforward chemistry experiment. He has water and metallic potassium that, when combined, it creates, uh, quote, a violent reaction of molecules. And then he kind of transitions that to um, talking about how science has harnessed is harnessing the power of the atom, but what about the power of the sun? And so this episode is all about kind of solar energy at its key. And I found that kind of interesting. Um, 
and he demonstrates solar solar power and everything. So the actual episode begins with Dr. Richard Marshall, um, a research scientist, and it's on the, for some reason, it's not, oh, oh, that's why. Wow. Okay. I was just about to say, for some reason, it's noted that it takes place on June 21st on the longest day of the year. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, why, why does that matter? <laughs> like, it does not come into play at all in the episode. And then I just realized, oh, longest day, longest sunlight. Like, that's, that's cool. I, I like that. It's kind of a nice little um, subtext or a little like texture to the, to the plot. So Dr. Marshall is awakened in bed and told that there's an old man there to see him by the name of Dr. John Crane, um, which I immediately thought of Dr. Jonathan Crane from Batman, which is interesting because I'll bring that up later. Uh, he was the scarecrow. So they have this jovial conversation that's kind of a little bit different than I expected because um, an old man, like I thought it would be a sense of urgency, but they're talking about this article about Dr. Marshall's research and how he had replaced the heart of of an orangutan um, and everything. So my immediate thought is like, okay, Dr. Crane needs a new heart. That's the whole point of this episode. And uh, slight spoiler, I was not wrong there because he... As they're talking in the lab, um, he kind of sneaks his, I assume it's like an EKG or x-ray or whatever, I don't know, um, onto the table. And he's like, oh, what's that, Dr. Marshall? And um, so actually before he introduces that, uh, Dr. Marshall is plainly explaining, and this is something I really actually appreciate a lot in this episode, is that Dr. Marshall plainly explains like the impossibility of creating an actual artificial heart because he says that there's no perpetual motion uh, machine to keep it pumping continuously and there's no way to ensure that it'll keep going without maintenance and and like keeping it keeping it um up to date and everything um which I found that to be a really compelling um reason um why it's not a possibility um even today. So, uh, Dr. Marshall then gives, oh, he, so Crane shows them, him the EKG or the, the readout. And, um, he asks Dr. Marshall for his prognosis and, uh, Dr. Marshall says prognosis negative, which immediately made me think of Seinfeld, <laughs> which I got kind of a little kick out of. So that's kind of the first scene and everything. And then, Later, Dr. Crane's daughter arrives, um, and Dr. Marshall, in, uh, like, they introduce each other, they, they, you know, they're, they're very happy to, to be in each other's presence, and then, uh, Marshall is like, is like, oh, wow, Jan Crane, I haven't seen you since you were a little girl, um, and, like, immediately I was like, are they gonna do, like, a romantic subplot with them, <laughs> like, I, and, like, I'm not, like, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to, uh, drag the episode too much, but I just think that there's a certain level of comedy in the way that age differences are, uh, showcased in romance in classic media, especially like classic. I I don't, I want to fall short of calling science fiction theater a B, like a, a B grade, um, piece of media, but it is an underseen kind of, I mean, it's, 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 it's a classic show, but it, it is it is almost lost to time, and it's not something that is endured. And when you see shows like this that are not in pop culture, that do not that do not reside in the natural national zeitgeist or anything, you kind of see the cliche in them, and you see the kind of, I guess I would I would say maybe lazy writing in it. So like to have this shoehorned in. 
uh, potential romantic subplot with with these two characters, with it also establishing that um, that she that he hasn't seen her since she was a little girl. There's like a certain ick factor in in gross out factor to that. But it also just makes it a, a very, very much dated and and really kind of awkward and funny in a, in a in a funny way. And I I don't like spoiling the episodes or anything, but there is a kiss between them that I found kind of. I mean, it is it is a perfect like sci-fi B movie kind of situation. She is angry. She's she's hysterical about uh about his his uh his work with her father and she she's trying to say like oh you knew you need to you need to just tell him to get rest tonight because he's dying and everything and you're you're complicit in this and everything and do that and then he just kisses her <laughs> um, to get her to calm down and then she's like and that had this that doesn't change anything that I've that I've that I've said about you and then storms out it's just such a such a 50s kind of shoehorned in romantic subplot that is a little bit uh does not it does not stand the test of time so uh as the episode progresses dr crane admits that he wants to be operated on and he asks marshall uh he he asks him if he is to if if crane is able to find a source for the artificial heart would he reconsider and i found this really funny again i'm not i don't mean to drag this episode or anything but i just thought it was a funny time element uh <laughs> quote unquote time element um to this uh to this episode because Marshall says that he won't because it's not up to doctors to essentially play god and everything and then as the act breaks uh he lights a cigarette and I'm just like oh lol the 50s um, so I thought that that was kind of funny so as the episode progresses I'm not going to give away the final act or anything it, this episode is available on YouTube and I do have a link in the show notes but I do want to point out that um Dr Crane brings in a patient who um, he operated on and has like this power source. It's, it's kind of a description of uh, it's kind of just show Marshall that he has access to a power source and everything. But he mentions that the patient is criminally insane and everything. And I th- just thought like, wow, D- Dr. John Crane with a criminally insane patient that he operated on. Like that's, that's the scarecrow. That's, that's, that's Batman. That's Dr. Jonathan Crane. Um, so I thought that was just interesting. I don't know if that was, I don't know when Scarecrow appeared in, in Batman lore. Um, so I don't know if it predates 1955, but I just thought that was an interesting coincidence if, if it is just that. So overall this episode, I mean, it's been a while since I've gotten, it's, it's been a while since I've done a proper, uh, science fiction theater episode. So to get back into it, I kind of feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of a, of a, um, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm a little out of practice with it. So maybe that's why I'm being a little bit more harsh than it probably deserves. Cause overall I did, I did like the grounded level of this. This isn't a mystery story. This is a, this is a compelling character story that has a lot of elements to it about, um, science and God and, and, and like our purpose and what we should do or what we can do or can't do. And it does lead to some interesting places in that respect, but it also is a victim of its time. So I don't know. It's kind of a, uh, an up and down kind of thing, middle of the road kind of thing for me. But I'm glad to be back to it. And uh, and yeah, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to next time, which, by the way, so that's going to wrap up this episode of Anthology. And next time on the show, um, I'm releasing this tonight. So it is 830 on Sunday, and I'm going to release this as soon as I finish recording so I can get this up and posted. Um, but 
The um, so as of as of this release, I'm gonna have my second episode of my solos bonus episode series go up on Tuesday. Which again, if you pledge ten dollars at Patreon.com/slash/ObsessiveViewer, you get access to all seven of those upfront and a bunch of other content, um, B-roll episodes, TV reviews, film commentary tracks, and other unreleased stuff. I have my first three episodes of uh, my reviews way back three years ago of, of uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Like I said, in August, I'm going to do that bonus episode series. Finally, I'm going to do it proper. So those are going to be completely new recordings. So if you want access to the unreleased versions, pledge $10 at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And, uh, yeah, so next time, so today's Sunday, Tuesday bonus episode of Anthology for Solos, episode two, and then Thursday, I'm really hoping that I can get this done. On Thursday, I want to get back on track with Thursday releases, and I'll be reviewing The Midnight Sun, uh, season three, episode 10 of The Twilight Zone, with a bonus review of The World Below, which is science fiction theater, season one, episode 18. I'm really hoping I can hit that. If if I don't get it posted on Thursday, it will be another Sunday release, and then hopefully I'll get back on track with the next week's episode, or the week after that, or the week after that. I don't know. So anyway, more episodes are coming, and I'm super happy that uh, that I've got those bonus episodes pumping out. Um, let me know what you think of those, and let me know what you think of the show and everything. And uh, yeah, so that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. And I'm going to play myself out. Uh, once again, patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. And check out my other shows, um, Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies. Thank you once again for uh, checking out the show. And hope you have a great rest of your day. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. It's just a really fantastic movie. Alien and Aliens are two like back-to-back movies that are just astounding. I, I love them so much. Alien 3, <laughs> I started watching the assembly cut um, on kind of a week or so ago, just kind of as background, but I, I kind of, while I was working and I didn't really want to do that because a, I don't really like alien three and B, I wanted to pay more attention to it because I've really only seen alien three, like once or twice back in 2014 when I wrote a review of the big and alien anthology Blu-ray set. Um, and I didn't like it. I just didn't like it. And I thought that the, um, the idea for the the original idea from the I think it was an outline or something was a lot better than what we got, but it's weird because I've noticed that there's a lot of love online for Alien Three. I like I've seen people say it's like their favorite science fiction movie of all time, and I'm like, you've got to be joking, man! <laughs> like that. I I mean, to each their own, but holy crap! I I don't understand that. Like I can't. I can't really wrap my head around that, but teach them. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! (laughs) 